welcome, or welcome back. You've tuned in to the Primrose Chronicles podcast. This is a tribute to the October celebration of Halloween as remembered in Middle America mid-20th century style, especially the way it was done on Primrose Avenue on the northeast side of Indianapolis. Thus, this episode is entitled The Primrose Halloween Scene. I never have to approach this fall event even in my adulthood with too much depth before out of my trunk of memories comes an offering by James Whitcomb Riley, the Hoosier poet. It's almost like an anthem to All Saints' Eve in my mind, that being Halloween. I memorized it for an autumn speech contest and for the longest time knew it all. Six decades later, fragments still come to mind in a flash, usually not in complete thoughts, but enough to recall the mood that it set for the holiday. See if you don't at least mumble along. Little Orphan Danny's come to our house to stay and wash the cups and saucers up and brush the crumbs away and shoo the chickens off the porch and dust the hearth and sweep and make the fire, bake the bread, and earn her board and keep. And all of us other children, when the supper things is done, we sit around the kitchen fire and have the mostest fun a-listening to the witch tales that Annie tells about. And the goblins get you if you don't watch out. Once, there was a little boy who wouldn't say his prayers, and when he went up to bed at night, away upstairs, his mammy heard him holler, his daddy heard him bawl, and when they turned the covers down, he wasn't there at all. And they seeked him in the cellar room and cubbyhole and press, seeked him up the chimney flue and everywhere, as I guess, but all they were found was just his pants and roundabout. And the goblins get you if you don't watch out. And one time a little girl would always laugh and grin and make fun of everyone and all her blood and kin. And once, when they had company and old folks was there, she mocked them and she shocked them and she said she didn't care. And just as she kicked her heels and turned to run and hide, there was two great big black things standing by her side. And they snatched her through the ceiling for she knowed what she's about. And the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. And little orphan Annie says, when the blaze is blue and the lamp wick sputters and the wind goes woo-woo and you hear the crickets quit and the moon is gray and the lightning bugs in dew is all squenched away, you better mind your parents and your teachers, fond and dear, and cherish them that loves you and dry the orphan's tear and help the poor and needy ones that clusters all about, ere the goblins will get you if you don't watch out. So starting to float back in thought to your own fall memories, let me help a little more. There was also the Longfellow's legend of the Sleepy Hollow that we often read aloud in class. And one time, over the course of a week, as part of his visit to our room, Mr. Mitten, our principal, came and shared the story. All these activities and more came to the forefront of lesson plans as many teachers pulled out their curriculum file containing all things pertaining to the 10th month of the annual calendar. Usually, the first school day of October visually announced the arrival of this one-of-a-kind month. We walked into bulletin boards with borders of pumpkins and backgrounds of orange and brown and even black butcher paper, all with contrasting die-cut letters, still titling the assignments and the topics like reading and writing and arithmetic. But for those few weeks, the subjects changed to the James Wickham Riley favorites like Little Orphan Annie and The Raggedy Man and, of course, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. But compositions and themes 
also invited creative writing of things that went bump in the night. And the objects of addition and subtraction and multiplication and division now involved numbers of apples or pumpkins or witches or ghosts. Every weekly art project advanced the promotion of that October 31st celebration, one week making construction paper masks not likely to be worn, merely displayed. Another week might involve crayon shavings, wax paper, hot irons combined under the watchful eye of the teacher or room parent, then cut into leaf shapes and taped to the windows of the classroom that looked out onto the schoolyard below, creating sun catchers of sorts. The craft effort that really helped us realize Halloween was indeed a reality was the one that required us to bring a large brown paper grocery bag that we carefully turned inside out to hide this store name, whether it was Marsh or Kroger or Standard or 7-Eleven. And now we had a clean slate for ornately decorating the container that would hold all our candy stash collected. Those were our trick-or-treat bags. Those bags would stay at school until after the classroom Halloween parties that were usually held the last hour of the day before the evening of that neighborhood collection. These annual parties were predictable, but highly enjoyable nonetheless. We brought our costumes to school and other paper bags, kept them at our desk or in a cloakroom if we had one, and changed at the last recess, putting them over our school clothes. We returned to our room laughing and commenting on the various outfits and were surprised that even the most stodgy of teachers had likewise dressed for the occasion. The room mother had prepared a feast of healthy items and others not so much. Apples, yes, but also cupcakes and cider were the usual fare. And an all-class trip down to Mr. Mitten's office gave us another audience by him and Mrs. Shoemate, complete with individual compliments and a piece of candy. I remember the PTA a couple of years converted the gym to a festival area with carnival-type games like the apple bob and cakewalks and fishing for prizes, and that all was celebrating the day that, in our minds, were just getting started. One other addition made to our evening of begging door-to-door also came by way of the school. A final project of the week, not really art but very hands-on, was the folding and tucking and taping together of a UNICEF slotted milk carton that we were encouraged to take door-to-door along with our candy bags. We would be ambassadors for the efforts of the United Nations Children's Fund, collecting pennies, nickels, and dimes and the like to add to the efforts of school kids across the United States funding children's immunization, health care, nutrition and education in more than 150 countries and territories around the world. We'd bring our full cartons unopened to school the next day and leave them at the school office to be picked up and added to the national endeavor. Somehow, that made our shameless request for unneeded treats upon threat of unidentified tricks more palatable. But as the school day was over, the real day, rather the evening, was just getting started. We wore our portions of the costume attire home while masks and props and collection cartons all went into our decorated trick-or-treat bags. But before I launch into these evening events, the changes to the natural world should also probably be identified, since they played such a part in preparing all of us for fall. With the cooler nights, even patches of frost sometimes, all the trees indigenous to the Hoosier State and the Ohio Valley, the elms and the maples and the oaks, they began to offer a very different palette of colors. 
reds and yellows and golds, in addition to rich and mottled browns, all appearing on the trees before they fell to the ground rapidly as they replaced the rich greens that had been the backdrop for summer activities. Autumn announced that a season of different sights and smells was being ushered in. Now, it depended where those leaves fell, how they were treated. Walking home, you purposely shuffled your feet to kick up and aside the fallen foliage that covered the walks. In most yards, though, up and down Primrose, parents got the kids to rake them up into piles, promising then the opportunity for a couple of days of fort-making or pile-diving or body-burying. And that last activity filled shirt collars and dungaree cuffs, only to be emptied on the floors of nearby houses, regardless of the best efforts to leave them outside. It was a different kind of good time, but it was enjoyed by all. Eventually, the leaves would be re-raked, bagged or barreled, and for many homes taken to the curb and lit a fire. Dads tended the flames while the entire neighborhood took in the fumes of rapidly burning remnants of warmer months. Even after the embers died, a haze usually hung over the yards and the streets, and somehow that was comforting. A reminder to most of us kids that we were on the cusp of a celebration second only to Christmas in anticipation and party, and exceeding it in the sugar high it would produce. And now, October 31st was upon us, the apex of a month of expectancy with heightened prospects for full bags of top drawer goodies. It was all parents could do to get their kids to the dining room table and to eat a reasonably healthy meal in hopes of settling young stomachs to receive the onslaught of sugar that lie ahead, regardless of how hard a parent might try to limit the intake over the next few hours. Of course, how the neighborhoods were approached depended upon the age of the trick-or-treater. In the early years, probably until I was about fourth grade, it was a family event much like trips to the fair and riding the rides at Riverside. There was a duet, a trio, ultimately a quartet of young'uns that left the middle of that first primrose block and began the house-to-house pilgrimage, eagerly ready to exchange candy placed in our bags with a cute pleasantry trick-or-treat and patiently waiting to move on as those answering the doors commented on the cuteness of our characters who had our hands outstretched. The episodes that disguised the urchins were as varied as the dozens that made up the younger population of Primrose. There were the store-bought costumes with silkscreen details on rayon clothing and hard plastic masks. There were the characters of Halloween, but also those that spoke to the aspirations of the door-to-door revelers. Nurses and princes, firemen, policemen, soldiers, and cowboys. The younger children had choices from nature, friendly lions and tigers and bears, as well as puppies and kitties. It was before political correctness, so there might be some efforts to appear as nationality or race not their own. Then, of course, there were the imitators of celebrities of the silver screen and TV. All of these and more might be among the throng that folks would welcome when they answered their doors on that evening. As an aside, after third grade, I was never a fan of masks. The eye holes were not properly placed for my head, and the nose and mouth holes caused me to breathe behind it and not through it, fogging my glasses and making my travels less than safe. As a result, I was a fan of imitation, 
collecting the components of a costume from our hall closet of clothing, and together it might reflect a character like the mummy or Frankenstein. I already had the height, or maybe just a ghost. A last-minute makeover could be a hobo, easily created with cutting off the hems of old jeans, tying up one of Dad's old flannel long-sleeved shirts, taking the ash of a burnt cork and applying it to my face to reflect a stubble. I could cut off and roll a strip of brown paper bag to create a mock stogie. A colorful bandana filled with crumpled newspaper tied to a thin stick would reflect all my worldly possessions as one of those persons riding the rails during the Depression. And if you can only imagine the congested sidewalks and streets like ours, you probably can't appreciate what a safe family event it was for this time as we, as a nation, moved into a time of growing prosperity. We weren't inclined to worry about what got put in our bags from a safety standpoint, only for our personal preference. We learned which homes we went to be certain we visited, and that we, it included the parents, You see, most homes with the smallest of Halloween participants, those in strollers and even perambulators, made a point of getting those little darlings into at least sleepers that had tails and hoods and ears like they were woodland creatures, perhaps even drawn-on whiskers, and got them up to the stoop for viewing, knowing that they could collect candies that the toddlers would never see, but they would enjoy as parents nonetheless. And that would be in addition to the items that they would remove from the older kids' bags after they went to bed, or secure as fees for taking them around the candy collection route safely. Kind of sounds like a protection racket, doesn't it? Anyway, the more years we had under our belts, we kids, as we got older, also became more selective, since this haul would possibly last us maybe until Christmas stockings. For Primrose families, whether it was first a middle break, or the last stop, everybody made sure they had time to drop in at the Ward's house, actually their garage, for a warm and warming highlight of the evening. Stan, their son, was one of my best friends, but his parents were probably the most respected and even beloved folks for blocks around, not just because of their Halloween efforts, but those certainly reflected their godly natures of loving their neighbors as themselves. In the days before All Saints' Eve, Charles and his wife Susan cleaned and cleared their two-car garage to receive families through one of the overhead opening doors for a -a one-of-a-kind experience, at least for this south of 46th Street community. A visit to the Ward's abode was welcomed by warm greetings, hot chocolate or apple cider, and fresh glazed donuts from a local bakery. Benches were sent out around the edges, and conversations were engaged in as costume kids to whom the evening was dedicated enjoyed this high point of the night. I don't remember many offerings from most homes that we called on, but I never heard from an old neighborhood acquaintance who years later did not remember fondly the Ward's contribution to that evening. The rest of the route for gathering your haul depended upon parents' patience, the youngest of the clan in tow, and the early or late time that you had gotten out as a family. If time was a factor, you checked with the other festivity-goers who might have gone before you to homes and you shared reconnaissance. 
which doors would offer mere healthy choices like raisins and apples. Now, if the said apples were caramel, that might still prompt a stop. Otherwise, it might be a necessary stop because they were friends of the family, but it was not preferred. Equally frowned upon by selective costumed recipients were the candies bought and offered in bulk, usually bite-sized pieces of taffy or maple-flavored variety wrapped in wax paper. Additionally for me, anything with coconut was perhaps collected but readily traded or given to mom who loved it or tossed if it was in too great an abundance. In those instances, it really didn't matter. It could be the largest bar of Mounds or Almond Joy. The reason for this aversion is another story for another installment, perhaps, but suffice it to say, no matter how it was covered, chocolate or caramel or otherwise, no matter what it was mixed with, that would not be ingested by me, and will not be, knowingly, even today. Some homes offered cookies, chocolate chips, sugar, oatmeal, although I was very careful around the latter because it was easy to think the Quaker ingredients might be mixed with the dreaded shredded white nut. Their textures were just that similar. Most homes had shopped at the grocery and bought in bulk single-size foil-wrapped chocolates or miniature candy bars. Some were shaped like Halloween figures or coins with the holiday scenes. Preferable were the brand name offerings, Hershey chocolate bars, Snickers, Three Musketeers, Thin Mints. Then came the candy corn, the jelly beans. Those were usually in abundance, but most of those bars were fun size. But in a few cases, full-size bars and bags were given out. In the minority, but still possible, was arriving at a door, finding that they had either neglected to stock up or had run out, and rather than just turn off the lights and retreat to the back of the house, they gave out money, and not just a donation into your UNICEF box. That was infrequent, but certainly appreciated with the situation being passed up the line to others following us. That was the case until the home wisely closed down for the rest of the night. Most homes had their porch lights on, and even their wooden doors opened with only the glass storm doors needed to be opened as kids came by. Lights off? We were either too late, they were not at home, or didn't want to participate. I don't remember but a couple of those on our Primrose travels, but vividly remember two older homes on Ralston that sat back from the street whose walks and driveways were lined with large trees whose branches arched over your path. I don't think we ever visited them. I delivered newspapers to the one, always in the afternoon light and always collecting the service in the same time frame. The other was the scarier. Kind of a Boo Radley's place like in To Kill a Mockingbird. It was the Wolf House. So named by the last name of the occupants, and it was the home of Wolfie. A terrifying lady to us kids who, when she went out and walked up Primrose to who knew where, strode with an extended step, always wearing a black hat and a black full-length coat regardless of season. Wolfie became a neighborhood legend. That is one of those comprising yet another TPC episode devoted to characters that help provide the color to the Primrose experience. As I said earlier, it really was geared to families. Certainly, as I moved into upper elementary, I was given the opportunity to travel with my buddies, even beyond the neighborhood, and that meant trading grocery bags for pillowcases. 
The costumes got a little scarier, albeit simpler, and I'm sure for those beyond our immediate boundaries, and we did travel far and wide by the time we were in junior high, we may have resembled a gang. Since the easiest costume was a takeoff on James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Now, I'm sure you assume that I was a participant in pranks and even outright vandalism, but not so. We certainly heard what could be done, but in truth, I came to believe that some of those antics were more urban legends or singular acts that became the source of legend. I never, nor did I know of any, flaming bags of poop ignited on the stoop of a cantankerous neighbor who was called out by the ringing of the doorbell and having him or her put it out with their foot. Neither can I claim involvement in a street event where a dummy was dropped from a streetlight or an overhanging tree in front of an oncoming vehicle causing the driver to veer off the road and wreck. The most I can attest to is carrying a bar of hand soap, really just for the purpose of flashing it to a skeptical homeowner who answered the door and to our question of trick-or-treat asked, what do you do if I don't give you a treat? We flipped it out to show that we meant business. Of course, it was all in good fun. Eventually, the evening ended with a return home and a dumping of either bag or pillowcase on the living room floor, sorting it into piles again by preference of keepers, traders, or tossers. We would eat as many of the keepers as we could before being shut off by mom or dad. We would also select the items that would serve as lunchbox fare, but that would depend upon whether it made it through the first recess or not. Over the years, we learned to physically do a candy count. Not sure how, but it was not unusual for there to be seemingly fewer of the high-end offerings available the next morning than we remembered when we went to bed the night before, but never to the point of feeling deprived. If I did begin to complain, I was reminded by mother of the children in China who only got baked crickets and sugar-coated ants and were thankful for them. How she knew so much about the subject, I have no idea. And I do remember pressing her for names, only to have her change the subject. As I moved out of junior high, I was much less inclined to go trick-or-treating myself, opting for parties, and on the evening, volunteering to stay home and distribute our stash of candy. In truth, it was not completely altruistic. This actually allowed me to sample what we were distributing regularly throughout the evening, given as I was to quality control and not wishing 4425 to be that house when it came to the distribution of sweets. High school had brought with it a move to an early morning Indianapolis Star newspaper delivery route, so staying out wasn't really something I necessarily relished. I rather enjoyed teasing the kids that came by and engaging them in banter as I contributed to their booty. At a risk of putting a downer on this episode, I feel led to recount one singular Halloween that in some ways became the divide between the fun-filled evenings of family and the stark awareness of the world that I would be growing into. I had gone to bed in anticipation of an early rise, planning on heading to the paper station that I spoke of in episode 15. For once, when I awoke, I had not overslept, and with pockets full of undistributed candies from the bowl in the living room, I headed out and arrived about 4.30, just in time, I thought, but probably not having to help unload the delivery of bundles from the truck into the station. Instead, 
I came upon a nearly full complement of my carrier compadres who were milling about inside and outside an empty station. As I came up, cutting across the vacant lot, I was met with the question, Did you hear it? Did I hear what? I responded. The explosion. It was Friday, November 1st, 1963. The night before, at a presentation of Holiday on Ice being performed at the Fairgrounds Coliseum, leaking propane tanks had exploded beneath the bleachers surrounding one end of the ice rink, sending metal and concrete into the air as well as the bodies of those in the audience immediately above the blast. Dozens were said to be dead and hundreds injured. Stories were circulated about family members who had been in attendance and witnessed the devastation, and that the Star had delayed their printing of the morning paper to cover the tragedy more fully, and we would get our papers when we got them. The actual late edition, hot off the presses, would arrive just after 6 a.m. that morning, and as I rolled the papers walking to my route, I read the articles, and I became more and more sobered by events of the very real world. The days following added to the horror of the initial reports. Eyewitnesses spoke of the carnage and how they would be forever changed. Others had lost loved ones, even friends I knew from Broderpool and even East 49th Street. Many heard the blast even on Primrose. I had not. It affected me a little differently. I consider that event to be the start of my transition from frivolity to seriousness. Not in obvious actions or expressions, but rather in reflection. Looking back, though the next several years were still 365 days in length, they run together today to form a tapestry into which my life began to fall. Less than a month later, after the explosion, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and then his assassin following him. A war had broken out in, to that point, an unknown corner of the world known as Vietnam, and America was being drawn into it, and while I was never called to serve, it became a place where some of my buddies lost their lives, and many others lost their innocence and found it replaced with a cynicism that would color their decades to follow. Efforts to right the wrongs of years of racial inequality came to the forefront in ugly demonstrations of evil and indifference and reaction. Martin Luther King was gunned down and then Robert F. Kennedy in short order. The world just seemed to be unraveling, and our generation was being asked to grow up and get smart and assume new roles. I guess it's because of where things went and went wrong that I have found myself wanting to step back into simpler times with this podcast. Oh, I have plenty of opinions and thoughts on what's going on and has been going on ever since, even into today. And certainly I could join others in the thousands of podcasts that espouse a philosophical or a political or even a religious bent. But my hope is to provide a respite from such, however brief it may be, and remind those of our age that, hey, it's okay to reflect. And as we do, I hope a younger audience would know that they can do the same. So on that somber note, I invite you to return next week, even as you're still enjoying your Halloween haul. We'll flip back the calendar yet again as we begin into the final months of a yesteryear for a stroll down Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue. Blessings. <laughs>